Welcome to the Center in the City podcast. I'm your host, Wade Brill, and during this series, I'll be interviewing various thought leaders, wellness experts, and humans on how they practice sustainable self-care and mindfulness. We'll get real and raw, talk about the light and the shadow side of self-care and mindfulness, and how we can actually stay centered amid the chaos and the hustle and bustle of our modern day world. So settle in and get centered. This podcast episode is brought to you by Centered in the City, a virtual on-demand self-care and mindfulness platform with over a hundred different meditations, journaling prompts, nourishing recipes, and Pilates flows, all designed to support you feeling calm, focused, and energized as you live your life in this modern day world. For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven-day free trial. I am so excited to have Lojo Rinsler as a guest on the Center in the City podcast. Lojo has taught Buddhism for 20 years, starting when he was 18, and he is the author of six meditation books. His newest book is called Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times which is obviously such a timely book and topic because of the state of world we are currently navigating. In this book, Lodro gives great insight and practical tips and tools of how to befriend our minds, start to listen to our minds and train our minds a little bit differently so that anxiety is not controlling us, but that we're controlling anxiety. Lodro was also the founder of Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City, and his other books have received publishing awards. He was named one of the 50 innovators of shaping the future of wellness by Sonoma, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Good Morning America, CBS, and NBC. So settle in and enjoy listening to this podcast interview. Feel free to share your thoughts and your takeaways with us on social media or in the comments below. Welcome to the podcast, Lodro. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And I'd love to begin by asking, I ask all my guests this because it's so interesting to hear everybody's different definition and experience of it, but what does self-care mean to you and what does it look like for you in your life? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, it's so funny how things get lodged in our minds. I, whenever people ask me about self-care, I think of a situation 10 years ago, something, some very far, long, long time ago, um, where I was leading a meditation program and meeting with someone who was a mother. And she was like, here's the thing, you don't understand. Like, I actually can't meditate ever. Um, every time if I was gonna do it in the morning, that's just time that ultimately my husband now has to be with the kids and that's unfair to him. And I don't wanna start our days like that. And we, you know, we talked about it for a little while and she kept saying, it's so selfish, it's so selfish of me. And I said, how do you feel after you meditate? And she said, um, I feel a little bit more grounded. I feel a little bit more present. I feel a little bit open and kinder. I said, great. Do you think your family would benefit from that? 
And she said, absolutely. And I said, so, you know, like it was this moment where she goes, oh, wait, maybe it's not me being selfish. Maybe self-care actually helps others. Mm -hmm. So long walk to get there, I apologize. But the idea for me is often like self-care is this thing that we need in order to recharge the batteries to the point that we're actually able to be all those things, to be open, to be grounded, to be kind to others. Um, if we are burnt out entirely, we experience compassion fatigue. We might still want to help other people, but if we're not actually taking care of ourselves, we don't have much to offer them. Mm-hmm. So for me, it often, you know, it's sort of like cart before a horse to think of it from a compassion perspective, like how do we show up for everyone else? But for me, it often is equated that self-care isn't just like something indulgent, like, you know, bubble baths and all sorts of wonderful things. And I never go out and help anyone. It's like, this is how you recharge the battery so that you can help others. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I mean, there's pre-pandemic and then there's current situation, (laughs) but you know, current situation, you know, we live in, um, about two years ago, I left New York city and moved upstate for the joy of simplicity. And I found it. And, um, I mean, there's any number of other good reasons. My mother is getting older. She wouldn't like me talking about that publicly, but she is. (laughs) As we all are. (laughs) right? We're near her and we can help her and things like that. But there's also just this very real thing of like, oh, like as I'm sitting here with you, there's some light snow falling in the orchard across the street. You know, there's something really beautiful. And for me, um, the way I often take care of myself, it's some basic stuff like good amount of meditation, getting enough sleep, exercising and moving the body and eating nutritious foods. Although I sometimes fall down on that. Uh, I get too busy. I don't need enough meals, but like a lot of that allows me then to move into the next tier of self-care for me, which is to slow down and appreciate the simple things like lighting Mm. and enjoying the smell, looking out the window and enjoying the snow for 30 seconds, 60 seconds at a time, you know, really Mm. big stuff, but that's also included for me. Mm. I love how you just said it as a layer, like, okay, you have the foundational layer to sleep, to meditate, to eat well, but then that next layer of of self-care is that slowing down just to notice, to be with. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's that's sort of how I've built, because I, I, I think about these things a lot. I know you do too. Oh, just how do we, what, what are the things that charge our batteries? And it's different for everyone, of course. But I, I think once we move into the point where it's like, oh, I'm, I've got some basic reserves here, we can slow down and appreciate some of the simple things under our noses and that can be self-care too. Right, and that also self-care doesn't have to be an hour activity every time, right? For that mother that you're talking about, right? Can you just take a few minutes for yourself? And what what would that shift do, right? What would that quick battery charge do then for her well-being and her family? A hundred percent. That's exactly right. It doesn't have to be an hour. It can be five minutes. It can be 10 minutes. It can be pausing long enough to put the phone down and just appreciate your surroundings. Yeah. It's all really important stuff. And I think for me, a lot of the work that I've been doing and that's being highlighted in this new book that I have, Take Back Your Mind, is like this two-step process of step one, we unhook ourselves from some of the stories and momentum of anxiety that hold us in pain. And just being like, oh, I don't have to chase after that anxious thought right now. I can come back into the present. From there, the second step is like, what can I appreciate about this moment? And that can be self-care, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. letting us, giving ourselves a gap already from the way that we keep ourselves locked in story after story after story about anxiety is already self-care. But 
once we're in the present moment, oh, wait, I can treat my mind another way. Mm-hmm. And move in a different direction. That feels better for me. In this culture that we live in right now, in American culture, this like rat race, capitalistic perspective of we need to squeeze as much production out of every moment possible, and this pressure that we each individually can feel to be producing, how do we get to practice self-care? And even more specifically tied to your book, like work with anxiety and work with getting out of those storylines of our mind. Yeah. It's an interest. You're right. I mean, one of the things that we don't ever talk about is that from a young age, we are taught, actually, you're not enough. Mm-hmm. You're not good enough. Don't listen to your parents or other supportive figures who might say that. Because really what you need is to strive and get the best education possible so you can get a better education after that. And that will allow you to get a job and that job is going to be meaningful and you're going to, you know, then continue to rise in the ranks and, you know, you get enough money and that's the end. And that's the, ha- that sort of becomes the happy point of like, at some point you get to retire. And it's sort of, it, that level of momentum that most of us buy into means that we don't relax until the thing is achieved, whatever the thing may be for you. And it could be getting enough money, getting a house, getting the perfect spouse. We've got to, you know, treat our, um, like Tinder profile, like a resume and <laughs> perfect so that people like us. It, it, the whole thing can be nerve wracking and it keeps us lost in a pretty constant state of anxiety. I mean, yes, we are in a moment. I think, you know, part of the reason why I think this book might be <laughs> released at a good time is because normally our personal anxiety is just our own anxiety. It's like, oh, I'm dealing with all this work stress or I'm dealing with finding, you know, a spouse and that's causing me a lot of anxiety whatever it is, but right now we're in a societal, societally anxious moment. We are in a moment where no one knows exactly when things quote unquote will go back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, early on in the pandemic, a number of the meditation students I work with one-on-one were like, so when are we going to go back to normal? As if like I somehow was like in constant touch with like, you know, virus their powers, right? Like somehow my meditation teachers were going to be like, here's the actual answer. You know, and they would tell me and I could tell people anyway. Yeah, so the idea here is like, we are lost in the state of not knowing right now. Mm-hmm. And we can get comfortable with not knowing. We can even start to relax into not knowing. But first we've got to just be like, yeah, that's something that we're all working with. We work with anxiety. That's just part of life. So this idea of um, the societal moment, but also the fact that from a young age, we're acculturated to anxiety of like, you're not good enough, you need more. Once you get that thing, you need another more. Mm-hmm. You need another more. The, you know, People often ask me, what is it like? Like you were raised Buddhist and, you know, that sounds peaceful all the time, (laughs) Um, which, you know, to some degree, there was a lot of great, wonderful aspects. But I think the main thing that I got out of it was a shift in view Mm -hmm. that coming out of the Buddhist tradition, there's a view that you're actually basically whole, complete good as is. And that you are not basically messed up. And that view that you can sort of, the lens through which you can start to view your life is really powerful because then you say, okay, if I'm not basically in need of more, can I enjoy what I have right now? Mm. I enjoy this moment. So to answer your question more directly, you know, some of the tools that are in there like meditation, mindfulness of emotions practice, mindfulness of the breath practice, loving kindness practice, all of these things are essentially bringing us home to a state of feeling whole, complete, good as is. 
and in that when we actually experience that for ourselves it's not like a lodro sitting here talking about it or something but it's like in our own personal experience we say oh i had a glimpse of that i bet i could have two glimpses of that i bet mm-hmm. i could have a minute of that and we start to base our life around the idea that we could develop further trust confidence faith relationship to a sense of wholeness as opposed to a sense of anxiety mm, yeah Oof, just you saying that I can feel my, my body just like relax more and just have more ease, not from a place of just from a place of, Oh, I don't have to try so hard and trying so hard. Doesn't mean I'm not doing and I'm not failing, but just like, I don't have to put that extra piece of pressure on myself which feels so good. And you, you made this point earlier of, you know, where we get on this kind of rat race of study, go to school, get that job, retire. And once you retire, you can enjoy life, but not all of us are so lucky that we can a retire or live that long. And, uh, you know, I lost my mom at a pretty young age and I might too, my cancer survivor. And so that idea of life is precious has really opened up that ability for me on my journey to realize, okay, I want those things in life. I have that vision and life is in this moment. And can I just savor and be with it? And I always have to come back to that when I notice my mind gets into the rat race loop because it can, it's so easily around us and conditioned. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, It's very easy for us to fall into the narrative of, you need more, strive for more, spend all your mental energy on more. Mm-hmm. And for someone who has gone through what you've gone through, I can only imagine that there is this sense of, I really need to slow down and appreciate what I have. I, I'll just speak personally. Um, you know, there's a period of time, 2012, 2013, where I lost my best friend, my father. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two separate people. <laughs> Although nothing gets people who do equate the two. Um, but in that period of time, it was just such a back-to-back situation. I mean, there are other losses as well, job loss, relationship loss, all sorts of things. Um, But it was this period of, you know, once I actually sort of emerged from the pain itself and got my head back on straight, because there's definitely a period where my head was not, um, it was like the sense of, oh, everything is precious. Absolutely everything is precious. Every morning at this point, I wake up and the first thing I do before my feet even hit the ground, I just think about the things I'm grateful for. And it's so basic. You know, it's uh, my wife and I are close to celebrating seven years. I think it's next month, month after. Um, It'll be seven years for us, a little bit over. And, uh, you know, waking up next to her, the fact that there's already a cat on one of us and that the cat's healthy. You know, health is such a big one since the pandemic that my mother, even at Mm -hmm. 79, is healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it really is some real basic stuff, but to take the first start of a day and turn our mind in that direction, as opposed to the direction of, oh my gosh, what am I already behind on? Mm-hmm. It's huge in terms of countering anxiety and giving us uh, a place of meaning to start from. Mm-hmm. I love that. Cause I read that in your book and when that brought up, uh, when I was going through treatment, I had a practice of ground, ground my feet in gratitude. Mm-hmm. So the second my feet hit the ground in the morning, I thought of three things that brought me gratitude, whether that was the sun is shining or I'm breathing or, you know, 
I get to go have this yummy cup of coffee right now or whatever it was, but just starting that day shifted me to look for what's right, what is working in life versus being in the anxiety spiral of what's not working, what's going to happen, where do I feel out of control, right, that we can so easily get trapped in. 100%. 100%. It's so easy for us to fall into these patterns. And it's it's affirmed by everything else around us. I mean, one of the th- points I make in this book is that we think that anxiety is something that's foisted upon us. And in fact, it's actually something that we create. There's stressors. Um, someone can say like, hey, I need you to get this you know, project done by the end of the week. And like, oh, I don't know if I have enough time. We take a breath and we either lean into it or we procrastinate and do it later or whatever. But like there's a stressor. And then the distinction here is we can acknowledge it and move back into our life. Or what we often do is we start to tell ourselves all sorts of stories about it. Well, this the person's always expecting too much of me. And I don't is this even the right job for me? We can start telling ourselves story after story after story. Nowhere did the uh, boss or whoever it might be say, um, I need this on my desk at the end of the week, and I want you to be anxious until then. Mm-hmm. And yet we ourselves might make that choice of, I'm just going to keep going over and over about what I'm going to say, what they're going to say, and keep ourselves locked in that state of stress. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where we start to actually look at some of the um, elements of working with our mind, both in meditation, but also in post-meditation. One of my favorite tips there is actually even to just ask ourselves one of two simple questions. And the first one is the one I often end up with, which is, is this helpful? Mm-hmm. First time that you're saying, yeah, here's what I've got to do about that project, probably helpful. Second time, maybe. 50th time, probably no longer helpful. Mm-hmm. And if you catch yourself at the 50th time, you say, is this helpful? The answer that might come up from inside you is no. And you say, okay, then I can actually shift out of that. I'm not going to do it anymore. The second question, if, in case people prefer it, is, is this useful? Um, and I think that's such a beautiful one. Like, is this useful? If it's not useful, why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. But somehow becoming gently inquisitive with that momentum can be really upsetting to it. It can interrupt it. So for people who don't necessarily have a meditation practice, a consistent formal sitting meditation practice, how are they supposed to notice the the patterns of their mind? Um and that they're even spiraling into anxiety or can label that experience as a stressor and can label that thought as, as an anxiety thought if they're not meditating. Yeah. Um, so this is, it is, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's probably akin to someone being like, I know I want to lose weight, but... Like if I never start a diet and I never work out, what can I do? Mm. And I imagine there are probably things that people can do, right? I love that, yes. Um, (laughs) If we want to work with our mind, at some point we do have to actually say, okay, I'm going to consciously spend time doing it. And it might even feel similar to any of those other things. So it was a little uncomfortable to make these different diet choices or to, you know, throw around these sorts of weights and move my body in ways that I don't really know feels a little uncomfortable at first and getting used to same thing we sit down and we watch the body breathing and our mind is all over the place and we're just like oh is this even working it really i mean i actually think the working out analogies are probably the best ones because Mm -hmm. it is a little bit like you don't even start to notice the difference 
until weeks, months later. And you're like, oh, look, I feel better in my body mm-hmm. or I look like I've gained some muscle mass or whatever it might be. Same thing where it's like, oh, look, I wasn't so reactive. Mm-hmm. That you know, email from the boss came into my inbox. I was mm-hmm. able to acknowledge it, come back to the present and deal with my work. Like there's something here where it's, the effects are so subtle, we often don't notice them. But if we do engage in practice, even after a couple of weeks, we start to notice, oh, something's shifting. Mm-hmm. Even if it is like, I'm just less held in anger. Mm-hmm. It'd be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> there's like some part of me that's also very realistic in this book. It's the seventh book I've written. And you might've noticed I, I joke like throughout where it's like, okay, so are you meditating that? No, okay, right. well, <laughs> other things, but really you ought to meditate. Um, <laughs> so some of the other things are very much what we've been talking about, like interrupting the thought pattern after the 50th time is no longer helpful. Taking three deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth when we feel really overwhelmed. Um, or if we're really, really overwhelmed, seven deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. This takes 30 seconds, a minute. You know, It's really not a major interruption. It doesn't uproot the source of our anxiety, but it cuts through it long enough for us to come back into the present moment and make other choices. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of little tips like that in the book as well. It's like, here's how we just interrupt the flow so we don't get too carried away. Mm, Yeah. And I love going back to the workout analogy. I think a lot of people, when they work out the next day, right, they get sore, like, oh, I can feel my butt or my abs or, you know, my arms. And that gives them that automatic feedback that they feel like they're doing something. But with meditation, as you said, it's so subtle. You might not feel or notice the benefits for a while. And to, to stick with it. Uh, and I know for me personally, on my journey, it took me about like six months of a consistent morning practice to then have this like, oh, this is what people are talking about when they, when they practice meditation. Like this is the shift that I can notice where I'm finding this sense of like deeper calm in my mind. Like my mind finally was able to settle after six months. Yeah. It's so interesting because most people don't want to wait around for that. Right. <laughs> we want to fix it. That's also what we do. Exactly. We want to Amazon Prime this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's not two days, if it's like it doesn't shift in two days, like all of a sudden we're like, it's not working. I think that's the interesting thing where, you know, I've been teaching meditation for almost 20 years now, I guess 20 years now. Um, and, um, there is some education process I've noticed that continues to need to happen because some people might just say, oh, I meditate and it feels like it should feel like a massage. It's not, it's not a massage. It's mm. us with our mind and looking at the good, bad and the ugly of it all. And I appreciate that you're willing and interested in talking about some of the shadow stuff around this because it's not just like, you know, we see these images on a magazine and the movies of someone just out on a cliff and the sun is perfectly shining and it's hitting their hair just right mm-hmm. and blissed out. But reality is we're in a cramped, you know, apartment somewhere. It's noisy outside. You know, we, uh, our hair is not having the best day. And all of a sudden we're confronted with the thoughts of like, remember your high school ex, man, you were a real jerk to them or whatever your version of it may be. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I don't even know where this is coming from, but this is what my mind wants to do. So it doesn't, it's not always pleasant, but it is good for us to, when we talk about taking back the mind, it's like us acknowledging that we don't have to chase after every thought that comes up. We mm-hmm. can train ourselves to actually have live a life that's more present and kinder to ourselves. Yeah. And I love in the book how, you know, you highlight the, 
that kind of tool of practice to label our thoughts, you know, label, oh, thinking mind, um, thoughts, you know, are popping up. I know sometimes it can be helpful for me to even notice like, oh, that was a judgment, like just judgment, you know, getting even as detailed as that. And then I love the experiment that you're playing with and welcoming your readers to play with that when the mind wanders to just gently say, oh, I love you and bring that back. And tell me a little bit more about your process developing that or what you've noticed playing with it yourself. Totally. Um, so I don't even know where this started, when this started, but I did over the last five years plus, I started to notice that more and more people were being really aggressive to themselves. Mm-hmm. They would sit there and they would just be a jerk to themselves, um, which is not what meditation is for. So yeah, it's almost like we had to count, like go to the opposite end of the spectrum just to get people to look at their own minds in a kinder way. There's two aspects to the basic mindfulness practice that's all in the news these days. Um, The first aspect is that of presence. And I think that's what it's primarily known for. Oh, you become more present. You acknowledge the thoughts, you become more present. Cool. But what happens in that moment when you acknowledge the thought? Because for many people, I found that they were like, you jerk, why are you like this? Why do you have so many thoughts? You're so bad at this. That is just perpetuating self-aggression. So the alternative here, if we're going to go to the other extreme, would then be, not surprisingly, to say, I love you to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we notice that we caught, catch ourselves drifting off. It's very hard to stay mad at someone if they're telling you that they love you. You know, so if we actually offer ourselves this real sense of love, kindness in that moment, unconditional friendliness, then lo and behold, we are practicing not just becoming more present, but we're also practicing becoming kinder to ourselves and then the more kind the kinder we are to ourselves the more we actually have this deep well of kindness to offer others yeah yeah it's so powerful like the definition of mindfulness that i like to play with is being present in the moment moment to moment with a kind and curious lens and i say that instead of non-judgmental because i think the the essence of getting to our self-talk is so key. And I know with my clients, their self-talk is one of the things that I think creates more of the spiral of anxiety. And so just like, oh, can we just be a little softer or kinder or more curious? And so I love inviting that practice in just when we notice the mind is wandering and more of sprinkling of love and kindness is never a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Love and kindness to ourselves, love and kindness to others. There's, um, an old, I mean, he said this in a bazillion ways, but there's an old quote from the Vietnamese Zen master, Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. And it goes, understanding is the other name for love. That if we can't understand, we can't love. Mm-hmm. That can apply to ourselves. It can apply to people in our life. It can apply to our societal issues. That ultimately, until we actually start to seek to understand what's going on, what the reality of the situation is, as opposed to our preconceived ideas, our fixed opinions, we're not going, there's going to be a blockage when it comes to love. So if we aren't, if we're going to pretend like we are just sort of perfect beings that don't have any flaws and don't have any neurosis and don't have any confusion, yeah, well, there's going to be a blockage in loving ourselves. But if we're mm-hmm. actually going to, in meditation, be with ourselves as we are, understand ourselves fully, the good, bad, and ugly of it, lo and behold, love starts to naturally flow. 
Mm. And that, of course, then goes into your relationships with others, your difficult family member, your friends, whoever it is, that difficult coworker, like, can I seek to understand them? What are they going through? Why would they act in a confused way? What's coming up for them? Have I ever acted in a confused way? Absolutely. Okay, so I have some genuine compassion that starts to well up because it's not like they're bad, I'm good. It's like, oh yeah, I can actually have some empathy. Yeah. Uh, Like I'm up here and pour you down there. So it's like empathy. Like I know what it's like when I'm confused or I know what it's like when I get off my anger or whatever it is. So then we start to seek to understand. And then, I mean, just because we've just gone through an election cycle, it's still top of mind that, you know, I live in a neighborhood where it's people from all different backgrounds and uh, while I myself am pretty staunchly liberal, I have not only conservative neighbors, but also QAnon neighbors. Mm. Um, and what an interesting experiment for me to be like, no, you're not a nuts person. You are someone that I'm going to seek to understand. Where can I find inroads of understanding? What can I do in my own mind? Oh, you've got kids. You want the best for your kids. Okay. Right. Get that. Okay. You know, like, you are, have these sorts of concerns that I have around our neighborhood. It's like, there's some ways that we can start to understand. And it's not like I will agree with them on everything. Mm-hmm. It's not like I will, I have to, you know, forgive them if they cause harm or anything, but I can at least seek to understand. Them. Yeah. And that understanding creates more of that human connection right there, living, breathing human that has their own world going on and you might not agree with it, but you know, that is their perspective. And that totally you sharing that quote from Tetnat Han just also made me, you know, realize like, wow, there's such a practice in marriage and relationship with my husband, right. To constantly practice, to understand, to get out of that me versus you tug of war mentality that can happen. And right. When we can practice that for ourselves or in our interpersonal relationships, well, what a shift we can start to see in our society. Yeah, remember I was, uh, there's a talk that a friend and a colleague of mine gave some years ago, Ralph De La Rosa, and he comes from a therapeutic background. He was saying, you know, that often what happens when we are fundamentally opposed to someone is that we think one of two things, either they're crazy and, or if they knew what I know, then they would see things my way. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, we thought of that. It's so interesting. Like, first of all, we shouldn't go around being like, you're just fundamentally nuts. Like, I, I don't believe that. Um, but even with the idea of like, no, 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 my fixed opinions are better than your fixed opinions. And you mentioned marriage. Like, if I sat around being like, no, this is how frequently we should be doing the dishes and, you know, it should, the kitchen should always be spotless. And my wife has a different technique around these things. I'll just say that. And, (laughs) you know, like, but like if one of us, if we got into this, like, this is the way it ought to be. And we really both doubled down with no sense of compromise, no sense of seeking to understand what the other person might be going through, whether they're busy or whether there's other things happening, then we would just be at a weird standstill and things would be, you know, really messy. Mm -hmm. But there has to be this moment in any conflict where it's like, hold on, let me at least seek to understand you. You know, let me seek to understand, like, what might you be going through? And can I soften? And that's mm-hmm. you know, the nice thing about being married to another meditation practitioner. So it's almost like a race of like, all right, who's going to soften first? <laughs> you know, like, who's going <laughs> to seek to understand first? Mm-hmm. Pretty hard for us to move beyond the sense of like, get to get to that sense of real solidity. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or the ego, right. Is holding on to like, I'm going to stand my ground. I'd love to ask because in uh, time in our American culture is such a big anxiety producer. How do you recommend people work with anxiety around time? Yeah, it's a great question. I think about this somewhat frequently. I actually have a friend, Dev Auschler, who's writing a book about time. I can't wait to read it because I think it'll probably fundamentally shift my relationship to time. But for me, I often think about things like the word nonstop comes to mind. Like there's a nonstop news cycle, but there's also the nonstop work week and there's nonstop social media stuff. So there's always a sense of like more we can be doing. And it used to be that you would come home from work and unless someone at the office called you on your landline, you didn't do anything until you went back into the office the next day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I know, it's like, what, what, what world was that in? Yeah. What world was that in? Like, why, why would we ever have given that up? And yet we just did. We did. We all just sort of communally agreed. No, what you do is you still are available on Slack or you are still available by text message or if you are the sort of person that still checks your email after a certain hour. So for me, my relationship to time often shifts when I um, put up, I mean, essentially we can come full circle to self-care, like self-care boundaries. Mm -hmm. Well, actually I don't check email after this hour. I don't look at social media after this hour. You know, I only, I don't, you know, we have our own rules, all of us, I imagine, but, you know, like when we're out to eat that we aren't on our phone, that we establish our own boundaries and parameters around when we need to be on so that we can actually have time to relax, Mm. Uh, that we don't have to keep creating more, creating more, and that someone will magically reward us with relaxation, but that we could relax and create space and time for us to do that. Mm. So time is often for me, it's like uh, equated with relaxation and enjoyment. Mm. That there's time that is just for me, my family, whatever it might be, like how I actually want to spend it as opposed to what is being asked of me to spend. Mm. I, I love that last line of ask, how time is being asked to spend because in my personal meditation practice, and I have a lot of time anxiety, I think growing up in New York City, you know, it's like time, time, time. If you're not doing something, the hustle, the bustle, like, are you worth anything? And now that I don't live in New York, but still that's in my blood and in my DNA and how I practice with it is in my morning sit when I feel an urge to get up or to leave my practice, or I notice something outside of me is being asked of me is pulling my attention. That resistance is where I try to sit 30 seconds longer, a minute longer so that I start to feel that I'm not being reactive to the time pressure around me, but I'm creating more spaciousness within me. And for me, like that is kind of like my boundary practice, but um, I love what you're saying around setting, setting boundaries. Like we can do it. And it comes back to that practice of, of self-care and And paying attention. For people that are like you and me, um, I'll I'll sort of lump myself into the same boat of that like baked into the DNA need to be productive thing that we are, um, we have to be the ones that are disciplined. We have to be Mm -hmm. the ones that, nope, this is not what I do. I Mm -hmm. actually, you know, have clear parameters. 
someone was telling me, you know, like they have an app called Freedom, you know, that's like shuts off social media. So there's tools these days that we can actually use to help um, get more disciplined. So whatever we need to do, those of us that are like, this is not my jam, we do it. Mm. Yeah. The discipline is a, is a whole other conversation we can get into in, a, in another podcast. Lojo, thank you so much for your time and your energy and your insights. Can you share with people where they can find you and learn more about you and your new amazing book? Sure. Yes. Um, happy to. So the book itself is called Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, because uh, we certainly live in anxious times. And it's mercifully, these days, it's actually found everywhere. You can go through bookshop and shop indie booksellers. You can go on Amazon. So it's on Walmart for some reason, um, you know, like Barnes Noble, whatever your choice may be. And the proceeds for this book are actually going to the Loveland Foundation, which is therapeutic support for black and brown women and girls and uh, Feeding America, which is a network of food banks. Um, and the idea here is that when people are actually buying the book, it's short, they should hopefully find some help and support themselves, but they're also helping and supporting other people who um, on a more systemic level are certainly going to feel anxious if they don't have the right resources to care for themselves. So hopefully we can all support them as well. Um, and then for me, I'm easy. I'm at lodrarinsler.com and at lodrarinsler on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and so on. It's very easy to find a lodrarinsler. Um, so that's, that's easy enough as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Center in the City podcast. If you know of a great guest for our show, feel free to send an email to team at centeredinthecity.org or sign up for my newsletter at wade at wadebrill.com. And of course, you can always check out the Center in the City platform at centeredinthecity.org. Until next time, stay centered.